Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is Dr. Anna Paltseva. As an international urban soil scientist and assistant professor, Dr. Paltseva's mission is to educate communities about the critical importance of soil health in growing nutritious food, supporting healthy ecosystems, and helping to reduce harmful greenhouse gases. Her expertise is in helping people identify and remediate soil contamination in urban gardens. She has a passion to help others to understand the impact of heavy metals on the health of soils and the best way to improve soil quality. In addition to her appointment at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, she has taught at New York University, CUNY Brooklyn College, and the New York Botanical and Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. This has led to her creating the Delta Urban Soils Laboratory at ULL that provides soil testing services and informal education to communities and businesses across the country. Now on to the show. Hi, Anna. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hi, I'm so glad to be here and share what I know about soils and hopefully get excited, people excited to test their soils and learn more what's in their soil. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I found out about you through Bryant Mason of Soil Doctor Consulting. He had mentioned you to me in regards to heavy metals. Um, but can you just give you know listeners a little bit of background into uh, who you are and what you're doing? Of course. So I am Dr. Anna Peltova. I'm also known by Anya, which is Russian nickname. I grew up in Russia, in the south of Russia, in my parents' garden. I used to play in uh, with dirt when I was a child, and this uh, childhood game uh, became my career eventually. Uh, my, both of my parents are agronomists, and they taught me how to uh, take care soil, our land, and grow our own vegetables um, and fruits. So I brought my family trade to the next level by uh, conducting research in urban soil, in um, urban agriculture, and I got my doctorate degree in earth and environmental sciences at the City University of New York Graduate Center a couple years ago. And basically since then, uh, well, for the last seven years since I started my PhD, um, I focus on urban agriculture, urban soil contamination, and soil testing, which also led me to open up recently my very own Delta Urban Soils Laboratory at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, where I'm currently an assistant professor in environmental sciences. That's so wonderful. And I I think your area of research is just really fascinating. Uh, when we talk about urban soils, you know, trying to grow food in the city uh, is really challenging. And the big issue is, is conta soil contamination related to, you know, things that we're dumping into the soils, things that are leaching into the soils and these heavy metals. Can you talk about uh, some of the research that you did around around heavy metals? Of course, yeah. So the starting, well, when you, yeah, started like 2013 when my PhD advisor offered me to do a test uh, on studying bioaccessibility of lead. And back then I didn't know what bioaccessibility was. But basically now I can easily define it as a fraction of harmful contaminants or metals like lead uh, that we determine in soil in order to understand how that particular fraction uh, can affect so, um, human health. So basically what we find is that not all metals are harmful and not all total concentrations are harmful. So let's take lead, for example. If we find uh, with a standard method that uh, there is a 
know, like 1,000 parts per million of lead in soil. It's a very high number, but it doesn't mean that all of this 1,000 parts per million is going to be harmful for humans or plants. It really depends on what form this lead exists in soil. And this form uh, will determine the bioaccessibility. It can be low or it can be high. Uh, depending on the chemical state of this uh, metal. If it's, let's say, um, lead combined with organic matter with phosphates, it will be very stable. The bioaccessibility will be low. So lead will be present still in the soil, but it's not going to be uh, harmful uh, or at least at much lower level um, harmful to plants or humans. But if it exists in the form of uh, like lead carbonates, it may be more uh, soluble in the environment, thus more harmful. So my research started with assessing different methods on um, specifically on bioaccessibility of lead. And it led me to develop two uh, different methods in collaboration with the um, uh, Columbia University uh, Research Group and uh, University of Molise in Italy Research Group on how we use instruments to uh, determine by accessibility of lead in soil using um, X-ray fluorescent analyzer machine and another one was uh, visible near infrared spectroscopy. Uh, this uh, method allows us to quicker assess the harmful fraction of the soil, not just total concentrations, uh, and uh, be able to test more soils, soil samples at a shorter period of time. So, so what you're saying is, it's really important to look at how bioaccessibility in, in that how easily can the plant uptake that particular heavy metal. And um, one of the factors that you, you mentioned is the, the form that that heavy metal is in the, chem the actual chemical form of that, of that heavy metal in terms of what it's bonded to. Um, what are some of the other factors? Like I just off the top of my head here, I'm thinking that um, plant selection would play a big role, pH, um, the, the hydrology or the amount of moisture in the soil. Um, how do all of these sort of come together in terms of determining um, you know, if you can grow a safe crop in the in a given soil? That's a great question. And all of those factors, it did have a huge role in the uh, availability of metals in soil. And uh, we found that a plant type is, is actually more important uh, than uh, amendment type that we tried to use to remediate soils because plants would react differently. Some plants would take up more lead and arsenic that we studied. Some of them would not. Or it would be more susceptible to um, get contaminants on the leaf surfaces, for example, like leafy greens, spinach, or lettuce from uh, splashes from surrounding areas or dust deposition. So really plant selection plays a huge role, which also means that we can grow some vegetables in moderately contaminated soil uh, if those like we grow tomatoes or eggplants or squash something that will be growing further from the surf, uh, surface of the soil because plants have physiological barriers inside of them uh, like food vegetables and if they grow further from the soil then it will not have uh, a splashes from surrounding areas and then it will leafy greens and then root vegetables will be of course more susceptible to this level of contamination. Another factor like uh, pH that you mentioned, which is really huge, is that m most of metals will be least available at pH close to neutral. So like slightly acidic to neutral pH, metals will be least available while nutrients will be mostly available. So nature is smart, as I like to say. It makes nutrients available and metals not. But once uh, it drops, pH drops to very acidic levels, it can uh, make lead and arsenic, for example, more uh, available for um, plant uptake or human impact. So it's really important to keep pH close to neutral as possible. 
Uh, organic matter is another one that's really important to mention because it binds lead uh, or some other metals and forms organic mineral complexes, which are more or less stable. And it will take time for organic matter to degrade to release those metals again. So we found it to be an effective way to remediate soils by adding compost to contaminated sites. And on top of that, it also has a dilution effect. When we add the extra volume of compost or any other organic amendments to the soil, it dilutes the overall concentration of metal in that soil Plus, vegetables that grow in that uh, soil will typically have a high yield that will be larger in size. Uh, so uh, it also creates a second uh, dilution effect in, uh, let's say, tomato, fruit, um, or an eggplant. So compost is a really great way to remediate contaminated soil. Uh, another factor is also you mentioned moisture. Indeed, it's good to have uh, moisture in soil, especially if it's the summer and it's very, very windy, or uh, it's like it's a area that's susceptible to erosion. So moisture helps to reduce dust and uh, redistribute contamination. So it's really good to have it. Another factor is um, soil composition. Is it sandy soil or clay soil? Because clay soils may hold more contaminants as much as they hold nutrients, while sandy soils are more permeable and they consist of cores. And cores doesn't really hold uh, hold on much of nutrients or contaminants on their surfaces. So there will be more leaching happening in sandy soils compared to clay soils that will act like a sponge. So you're, you're referencing the CEC or cation exchange capacity of a soil and the higher the CEC, the higher the ability to retain heavy metals in that soil. Yes, that are cations, the positive metals, yeah. Yeah, and, and then what about the anions though? In a higher CEC so, soil, would you still see more anion retention? They, there's a possibility they will be leach out more. Okay. In the groundwater. Like arsenic is more leachable, for example, than lead. Lead will stay in the soil. It's not very mobile, but arsenic is typically in a negative form. The arsenic or arsenite will be uh, susceptible to uh, leaching and moving down in the soil profile. So um, you, you mentioned compost. Now, I think of compost as a source of soil contamination in terms of heavy metals as well, depending on where that compost is sourced mm -hmm. because I mean, frankly, locally, the, a lot of the municipal composts um, aren't really doing good testing and they're composting some, some, uh, you know, I think somewhat uh, mixed material where people are throwing stuff into their yard waste that they shouldn't be essentially. Um, so how, how does one evaluate compost um, to know if what they're adding is actually going to be decreasing their heavy metal load or, or potentially increasing it. Great point. And we also found that the, some compost that we were buying for our research contain elevated concentrations of metals that shouldn't be there. And of course, we didn't use them for research, but it was a really interesting discovery. To answer your question, basically testing is important. You should periodically test uh, samples or bags of compost or any other amendment that you buy in the market. Uh, and it's a really good investment if you want to make sure you're not adding additional heavy metal concentrations. Uh, you will still get some of the metals because metals, uh, you know, they present in, in plain tissues, but they should be at their low concentration. Uh, unless those composts are made from contaminated manure or from trees, uh, leaves from the trees that grow next to road, um, other type of compost, if it's like you make your homemade compost, it's going to have very minimum uh, metal concentrations that shouldn't be harmful. So testing is really important to understand what levels you add into the soil so you don't create accumulation of these metals. And I think that that's the answer. You either make your compost yourself and you know what you put on that compost, 
or you test what you buy. And, you know, so for one of the things I want to talk about with you is the fact that um, I, I agree, testing is so important, but it's been it's been not affordable for people. It's been way too cost prohibitive. I know when I first got um, my soil mix tested, a potting soil, uh, to make sure that we were meeting the requirements of a fertilizer because of the amount of nutrients we're putting on, it's a much higher requirement. So if I were just going to sell potting soil, I wouldn't have to test it for heavy metals. And that's what 99.9% .9 of the industry does right now. Um, and, and so we, we don't really know what heavy metals are in our potting soils because no one's testing them and no one's testing the vegetables. If you register as a fertilizer, it's a higher requirement. Anyway, long story short, the cost to do that was a few hundred dollars. It was quite expensive. Wow. Um, and, and then I get a guaranteed analysis and then I can put this gets publicly published. Um, but I, I agree with you. This is really important. But as a homeowner, I also wanted to test my soil in my backyard because I wanted to grow vegetables. But being that it was a suburban area, you know, I didn't know what construction had been done on the property before I before I bought it. And, you know, I didn't know if things had been dumped here by a previous homeowner or things had leached. So what talk to me about this this lab testing that you're doing and you know the pricing and just how amazing this is now as a way for people to test their soils yes you brought up really great points it's important to know land use history land management um, history of your property and if it's possible to find those documents or maybe look up on some EPA websites. They always have really great uh, tactic maps or information on the area. So you could get an idea what potentially could be in your soil and see the proximity to highways or former industrial sites. So at least get an idea what could be found in your soil. Um, the, in terms of testing in the labs, of course, commercial laboratories uh, they would charge certain amounts of dollars for their testing. Uh, typically, university labs are much more um, affordable. Um, from my experiences working at uh, in New York and Brooklyn College and here at Lafayette, uh, we are uh, not doing it for profit. It's not for profit organization, really. We use this uh, lab um, expenses or costs uh, to cover um, the materials uh, we use to to test the soil and really support students. So the method we are using, for example, to test heavy metals is an express technique. Uh, it's actually called exportable X-ray fluorescent um, analyzer instrument uh, that we used a lot in New York and we have here in Lafayette. And it uh, reduces the cost because the machine itself is much less expensive than mass spectrometers that uh, commercial labs typically use. And those mass spectrometers, of course, provide high accuracy and precision. But modern XRF uh, machines, they have actually um, good results. They're very reliable if samples are properly prepared. And uh, the way we achieve this uh, relative accuracy is by, um, let's say, you send me a soil sample, we will analyze it by first uh, drying in the oven, reducing the moisture condition, like get rid of the moisture, then sieve it to two millimeter size to create the homogeneity of the sample, and then uh, measure this uh, soil in uh, special cups with a special film that does not have impurities in it uh, on this XRF machine. And it's a result that give us close uh, uh, proximities to the mass spectrometers. And this reduces the cost because the instrument is much less expensive than mass spectrometers and it requires less time to prepare and analyze soils. Because when you do a mass spectrometer analysis, it takes a few days and you have to prepare the sample, like dry it, sieve it through. Then you have to weigh it very small um, numbers, like 0 0.2 or 0 0.3 grams. And then you have to uh, add uh, different acids to it. So you have to put it in a microwave or in a hot plate. 
and then you have to run it on one spectrometer, so it will take several hours, then you have to process the data. So all of this will uh, require more time, and of course, uh, more it becomes more expensive. When you have to pay for uh, the time of the lab technician, assets for machine, uh, SPMS uh, maintenance, maintenance is uh, quite expensive. So what we have been using here is this XRF portable machine that allows uh, much faster results and uh, less time um, to process the uh, soil samples. It uh, can be also fertilizers, it can be different amendments, compost, uh, some sort of uh, solids that we can um, analyze in those um, XRF uh, cups that they're called the small plastic cups that we use for the machine. And we need typically at least like one centimeter depth of uh, the material to analyze it. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the methodology that you use is uh, not maybe not quite as accurate as a mass spectrometer, but it correlates well. So it'll give you within a, a, a fairly good standard deviation of what you would get from a mass spectrometer. But the method itself exactly. is dramatically less expensive and much faster. So um, yeah. the, it, it's just a huge savings in both time and money. So um, we've been using your labs now for a few months, um, testing, uh, you know, formulations for uh, fertilizers as well as our so our potting soils. Um, I haven't tested any actual soils with you yet, uh, but um, that's something I'm looking forward to in the future too. But um, you have the ability to test all of these things. Correct. Yes, and also it's a good point to uh, to notice that these procedures, like having it. Um, slightly less precise and accurate than mass spectrometers, but you can test more samples with this. Uh, for the same amount of money, you could test more samples, and it will resemble variability of your soil or potting mix or whatever you're doing, uh, because the, uh, soil typically is very, or soil mix is very heterogeneous. And soil in general is super heterogeneous. At your property, your soil on the lawn versus soil next to the foundation of the house or under a tree or in your vegetable garden may be very different. So it's uh, better to test more samples as a slightly lower accuracy, uh, but get a larger number of samples. So you get the better understanding of what's actually happening in your soil. And unless you're doing analytical chemistry, it doesn't matter if you're, um, I don't know, if you got like 25 parts per million of lead versus 20 parts per million of lead. You know, so it's, um, it's really important to detect the hot spots uh, of contaminants and compare them to guidelines to see if they're higher or lower. Um, and uh, I think for a for an average gardener, that's more important to test more samples to understand what's happening in the entire property than just test one representative sample on an expensive machine versus have multiple samples tested. That's a really, really good point. And from a statistical perspective, by increasing your end value, the number of samples that you're taking, you know, I could mm -hmm. probably take eight eight or nine samples for the price of what it would have cost me to go with the mass spectrometer, um, I can I can graph those and, and plot them and then come up with a, a more consistent value across all of those that would probably be as accurate or even more accurate of what's actually going on in my soil or in my fertilizer than, you know, one one sample. So that's a that's a that's a really good point you brought up there. Yeah, and this is the something that the uh, labs, university labs, I have noticed uh, reading research, uh, not just in the United States, but in some other countries as well, start using more and more this XRF method. It's uh, their EPA or USDA method, uh, how to use, I think it's EPA um, protocol, so it developed to just follow the procedure, how to prepare a sample and uh, analyze it, which also, uh, this machine also allows to uh, test soil in a uh, uh, natural environment, like outside. 
uh, of course, the result may be less accurate because it's, it's moist or it's more heterogeneous. Uh, but still, uh, if we go around uh, the city or even a, a garden, we can detect the hotspots of uh, high levels of metals and collect those specific uh, samples. Um, and it's really good to understand variability in the garden or in the city. Like this is what I'm aiming to do in my um, research is to analyze uh, soil in Lafayette and see how metals are distributed here. Uh, and this instrument allows us to do it in a real-time setting. When we go around, we analyze it, we get the data within 90 seconds, and then we can collect samples from um, highly contaminated areas and bring them to the lab for further, more accurate analysis. Yeah, now, in your research, how are you finding uh, soil depth or compaction influences heavy metals? Like, are, are the heavy metals more at the surface of the soil? Because I know you were talking about dust and, and things like that. Or are you finding them further down? Like, could I grow a crop that's a deep-rooting crop as a way of, of potentially helping remediate them? Or am I less likely to have contamination growing, you know, something like a lettuce that's a very... <laughs> low rooting yeah so it's typically closer to topsoil or on top of the soil uh, if you don't add compost to your soil let's just say it's normal soil mm -hmm. uh, you will see it's uh, closer to the surface or a, a really like topsoil that most likely contaminated from all these deposits over the last um, i don't know let's say 100 years that lead has been used uh, or other metals been used and deposited from industrial sites, from uh, highways, from lead paint. Uh, if you add something like your compost over and over every year, then of course you're burying, burying your contaminants um, under, which is another remediation technique, by the way, with burying contamination under compost layer. Uh, so yes, uh, topsoil is most likely going to be contaminated, uh, surface soil compared to uh, subsoil okay. and dust and splashes is something to be concerned about if soil is contaminated and if there are any children around it's really important to uh, make sure kids are not playing in contaminated soil that's a really good point so even if you don't plan on growing vegetables if you live in an urban environment this would be a very simple way to just make sure that your yard is safe um, for your kids to play yes it's it, it's even more important than for vegetables because vegetables, uh, as I said, like they pick it. They can, some of them can grow well and safely. Some of them, like carrots, should not be grown in contaminated soil. But for children, it's imperative to test uh, soil, the backyard, to make sure the kids are not exposed because the primary pathway of heavy metal exposure for people is actually uh, ex uh, ingestion and house dust. So children who are playing in the backyard on the bare soil, they would touch fingers and then lick their fingers, ingesting potentially contaminated soil. And this should be avoided. And to do that, first test the soil, see what the levels you're getting, and then plant some lawn on top or put some, some sort of fabric, some protection layer, so children are not exposed to bare soil. So definitely parents who have small children should test their soil just to prevent potential exposure. Yeah, that's a great point. I, uh, as a new parent to a two-year-old, I am always thinking about this as someone who thinks about soil a lot. And right now um, we're living with my in-laws and they live on a golf course and I watch the chemical applications that are happening onto the grass on the golf course. And, uh, mm -hmm. I don't want my daughter to play anywhere near that grass uh, for a lot of those reasons. So, uh, you know, I think as parents, that's something we definitely want to be thinking about. And I know I've seen research that shows that children uptake these um, chemicals, and, and I'm assuming these heavy metals, quite readily, uh, even sometimes right. more so than adults. So um, yeah. I, I think that's a wonderful point for people that live in cities or in areas that have been contaminated um, I'm thinking of Oklahoma just because I do a lot of work in Oklahoma and uh, I know there's a lot of contamination sites there. Uh, so, you know, parents, please do consider 
getting your soil tested. Um, and we'll list all the ways to, uh, or the method to go about getting a hold of Anna and submitting samples to her lab on, on the podcast page. Uh, so people can get that information mm-hmm. and absolutely get a hold of you for this. Um, yeah, so let's, and we have also practices how to remediate soil in case it's contaminated. I will share those resources as well. That was my next question. So let's say I send in my sample to you and whether I'm growing cannabis, vegetables, I just want to protect my child and know the ground safe. It comes back with high levels of arsenic or high levels of lead or cadmium. What do I do? Yeah, so it will depend on how high those levels are, but uh, and where the how big the distribution <clears throat> is. It the whole garden or just a vegetable plot? Uh, so some of the basic techniques to remediation is uh, adding compost or some sort of organic metal like mulch. Uh, or something else that will help to dilute the soil and um, bind metals with this organic matter. Another option um, is to put lawn on top, uh, some sort of grasses to cover a bare soil so there is no dust, uh, there is no erosion happening, reducing the uh, potential runoff of the soil. We can uh, so planting vegetation, adding compost or some sort of organic amendments. You can try and change uh, chemistry of these metals by adding uh, phosphate uh, amendments or phosphate fertilizers. Uh, although we found it uh, would be tricky for uh, an average person to figure out how much to add and how long it will take to break down. There are some studies that uh, did successful job with the change in your chemistry of lead and converting it to pyromorphite, it's a stable lead phosphate mineral. But for an average person, it can be tricky to add. Uh, and some um, sometimes, if it's possible, you can bring a new soil, new clean uh, sediment um, from if it's some organic matter in it, of course, for nutrient content from another area. Uh, some people mm, take it from uh, maybe like a farmland that they know it's clean, or in New York, for example, there's a program that's called the Clean Soil Bank, when actually distributes a glacier sediment um, uh, to community organizations. It's uh, mostly sand, but it's clean, it's pristine because it uh, was collected from deep layers when the foundation of a new building is being constructed. And that glacier sediment in the community garden, let's say, can be mixed with the compost to provide nutrition value and successful plants can grow. And of course, it's uh, much much safer for children. So if there is a way to bring a new uh, soil, it's a possibility using raised bed soil uh, or build a raised bed on top of contaminated soil, it's an option. If you don't worry about children, if you don't have uh, small kids and you only want to grow vegetables and you don't want to do any amendments or any compost additions, then grow tomatoes. Uh, they found to be um, at the moderately con- grown well in the moderately contaminated soils because they have physiological barriers inside of them that prevent uh, metals to be uptaken uh, to foods and that further from the surface that tall plants and they don't really have uh, splashes from surrounding areas. So those will be very simple techniques, uh, probably least expensive. Of course, you can excavate it and bring absolutely new soil, but it will be more expensive. So, so we've been talking about soil as the primary um, source of contamination, but can we talk a little bit about um, where this is all coming from? It's not like that soil started out contaminated. Um, where, where is this contamination coming from, and how do we limit that in you know not just our gardens but also our homes? Uh, good, good question. So. 
One thing to know that uh, metals naturally occur in soil from parent materials such as rocks and minerals. But those levels are typically very low and they're not harmful to people because they're natural sources. However, we do have anthropogenic sources of metals, which in most cases is industrial sites. It's uh, roads, cars, vehicles, and uh, paint, um, leaded paint. Of course, it has been banned since 1978, but lead paint is still on some old houses. So it's important for people to know what kind of paint they have on houses if they, be, if they live uh, in them and they know they're before 1970. So the most likely will have some uh, lead. So it's really important to know that part and then do testing of surrounding areas if possible. You can even test paint chips these days as well. Uh, so it's important to reduce the house dust, so especially if there are children in the house. Uh, by doing a cleaning, just like, you know, with a, some wet napkin or something to, the, so the, to bring down the dust. Dust is one of the main sources inside of the house. And this dust can come from, uh, you know, from windows, from open doors, from shoes that people work outside or walk uh, just outside and bring this dust and dirt into the house. So to avoid this, leave shoes outside uh, or change shoes when you walk inside. Don't bring dirty uh, instruments from the garden into the house and do um, wet cleaning, like wash floors and wash window ceilings. Uh, so yeah, those are basic recommendations uh, to reduce contamination inside of the houses. Um, we cannot change land use history of locations where we live. You know, they had some industry industrial sites in the past, but we can uh, control our environment inside of our homes by just doing good cleaning periodically and testing uh, what's um, surrounding our houses and knowing the history of the house or at least when it was built. That's a, that's a good point. And one other thing people, I, I want people to consider when we're talking about edible crops and food crops is everything that those roots or that soil is coming in contact with. So if you're going to build a garden, think about the material that you're using to build with. Yeah. I, even with fabric mm -hmm. pots, I've saw some research, um, some pots coming out of China that showed high levels of lead. So when those roots hit that edge of fabric, that fabric pot, they're being exposed to that lead and they could potentially be taking it up. So, um, there's just a lot of things you have to really think like a scientist or like a detective when you start yeah. thinking about read labels this. too. Yes, yes. So, um, well, great. I want to kind of change directions here. Um, we've been talking about heavy metals related to gardening and urban soils. Um, since this is a, a cannabis cultivation podcast, um, and I know your experience is not with cannabis, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, heavy metals that, you know, some of the, how that might relate to cannabis and get your thoughts on some of this. So one of the things is in certain States now they're testing the flower, um, for arsenic, cadmium and lead and, um, at fairly aggressive thresholds and cannabis appears to be, uh, a fairly good at uptaking, not just nutrients, but these heavy metals, um, and we are seeing some failures in certain states based on uh, the methodology that people are using. Um, you, you've already talked about ways to sort of reduce uh, heavy metal exposure. Um, you know, we're not testing vegetables like this. Do, do you think that down the road policies might change in terms of how how we're testing? Like maybe cannabis might be um, sort of an example for how we may eventually test vegetables? That's a very interesting question. I think uh, part of the answer here would be um, to understand that cannabis is not a simple plant. It's hyper accumulator plant. And that plant basically is capable of uptaking metals from soil. And I think this is why policy is really forcing on uh, measuring uh, cannabis. Uh, not uh, all vegetables are taken up 
metals at the same level. So each vegetable or fruit or berry or tree versus grass, they have their own capabilities, how much they can or willing even to uptake metals and how they tolerate it. Some can be uh, more susceptible than others. Some plants may be uh, affected by even low toxicity levels. Others can be much higher. Some of them may prevent um, contaminants going into their tissues like tomatoes. So there's no need as much as cannabis to test tomato plants. So it's really uh, um, important to understand what type of plant it is. And when it comes to hyperchemical plants or plants that we know can take more metals than the average plant, then it needs to be uh, more vigorously regulated. So, I'm not a policy person, but like from a science <laughs> point of view, that's how I see it. I, I mean, I would love to see, I would love to go to the grocery store and eventually have there be, you know, conventionally grown, organically grown, heavy metal free, um, you know, have of some of these new labels that would allow me to make choices because I would pay a little bit more to know that what I'm buying is is free of, of certain contaminants beyond, you know, just the organic certification. Um, but who knows? That's a great point. And I, um, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to the question, but I think it's definitely more interesting and it comes back to uh, testing and pricing for testing, right? Because if we have to test everything, everything, then every batch, it will be lots of data, lots of processing, lots of labs and lots of delays. Uh, but I think having more vigorous food uh, testing is good. And I know FAO recently was bringing it up that they were collecting data from scientists around the world on, uh, I think it was mercury and fish. They were wanting to see more data on it. So I think it is moving towards uh, food um, safety testing um, and metals and perhaps other contaminants as well. But, it, you know, it takes some time to be able to test everything. So can I share with you some of what I've found in, in cannabis um, related please. to heavy metals? And please just correct me if anything I find seems say seems odd or wrong or uh, inaccurate. Um, but since, since we've been, we've been diving more and more into this, this heavy metal thing because um, we've had a few growers fail and, you know, as someone who manufactures soil in addition to this podcast um, and, and the fact that we do organic soil and organic amendments, uh, you know, there is always going to be some heavy metal load in our soil. And so we're always looking at how to reduce this because we use things like rock dust, which, as you know, contains mm -hmm. levels of, of heavy metals um, and soft rock phosphate, um, you know, any mined product or um, uh, in my experience, contains some level of heavy metals. So it's all about heavy metal management. We can't reduce it to zero, but we want to make sure right. that we're not overloading it. And then um, beyond that, keeping our pH a little more alkaline. So I like to run my pH higher than traditional um, agronomic recommendations, um, probably closer 6.8 to 7 range rather than, you know, 6.4, mm -hmm. 6.5, like I see like I see in a lot of places um, is sort of the sweet spot for me in terms of heavy, in terms of reducing heavy metal risk, but still allowing for good nutrient availability um, mm -hmm. in terms of exposure. So, um, you know, I just want to throw out there, no one's failed just using our soils. We've always found other sources of contamination that were more significant um, and really contributing to a fail rate. Um, some of these were uh, water sources. People thought they had clean water, but mm -hmm. they were from a well, and they actually were bringing up um, groundwater. groundwater. In this case, it was arsenic. Um, I had another one in a facility that was an old building in Oklahoma City, and they were doing a lot of construction, and they were kicking up dust, and that dust was falling onto the leaves and causing contamination. Um, so that was a little bit of a tricky one to figure out. Um, even wow. things like... Uh, sump pumps or uh, metals that are in contact with water for a long time, like in a reservoir or through an irrigation system, we found can increase a heavy metal load too. Um, so it's, it's, it's a challenge and you're, you're always trying to figure out what it is. And then um, 
I, I guess one thing you brought up was phosphates, which I thought was really interesting and in how they might bind up um, lead. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that we find with, um, I, I've been trying to find a good phosphorus source that was uh, vegan or not animal based. And it's, it's really, really hard. <laughs> um, all the ones I find are also bringing in uh, heavy metals. Um, I, I sent one sample to you of a soft rock phosphate and it came back mm-hmm. with, you know, lead levels. So how, one, do you know of any great phosphate sources that are going to be lower in heavy metals? And then um, can you talk a little bit more about this phosphate binding? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question on uh, sources. One thing that came to my mind is uh, fish bones, but it's not, I mean, you said uh, you wanted it to be vegan or like not animal products, but then, yeah, it's appetite. Uh, it's a traditional uh, rock mining, you know, mineral, which is running out. So we need to uh, look, uh, look for other phosphates, um, sources but yeah fish bones would be non-vegan uh, source which might not have as much heavy metals as anything else um otherwise i don't know it's it's, it's hard to think um i have to think about this one and get <laughs> back to you if i find the resources it's, it's yeah it's, um typically fungi would help uh, to um, release phosphorus that's in the environment, making it more accessible for plant uptake. So maybe there will be some mixes with fungi that could be now developed I, more. Uh, uh, Dr. Allison Justice actually sent me a paper a couple of years ago out of Italy that showed uh, with hemp increased uh, heavy metal uptake into the hemp biomass with the addition of mycorrhizal fungus, which makes sense to me because mycorrhizal fungus increases the uh, nutrient mm-hmm. uptake. You know, mm-hmm. it's most notably phosphorus, but uh, um, other nutrients as, w- as well. And so they saw higher levels of arsenic with um, uptake yeah. with it, which, uh, which I just thought was interesting research. Um, so I, I guess maybe my question. Yes, arsenic becomes more arsenic becomes more available with phosphorus addition, while lead becomes less available with phosphorus addition. So that's a paradox when both lead mm. and arsenic are present in the soil. Yeah. That, I didn't know that's so really interesting. So phosphorus might not be, uh, yeah. So phosphorus may not be the best solution if soil is contaminated with both lead and arsenic. How... Uh, when we did a test. Uh, for heavy metals in uh, in our research in New Jersey we tested um, soil that was contaminated with lead and arsenic and we we added uh, different phosphorus fertilizers and we added different compounds and we saw that arsenic was more available did not was not fixed by phosphorus obviously because they start uh, competing and arsenic becomes more mobilized but compost was a better result for us and showed the basically, yeah, it was more successful as a remediation technique compared to uh, phosphorus fertilizers. Hmm, that's, that's really interesting. Um, now, one thing you mentioned was that arsenic is more leachable than lead. How realistic is it for someone to uh, flush their soil or their, their, their media as a way of reducing arsenic levels. Is that going to make a significant difference? Oh, that's an interesting question that I'm not capable to answer fully because I know there is such thing as an industrial washing when like, you know, they do it on a large scale and they can wash soil uh, with water or maybe some other solvents that help to remove uh, heavy metals. But I don't know for if it's sufficient for a person to do it. I just not something I've seen in literature because I never was curious about it until now. <laughs> That's fair. I, I appreciate your honesty. I would think it's not 
very super leachable just because we still see it in areas that have heavy, you know, fairly significant rainfall. Right. If there was, a, you know, we have exactly precipitation and natural, yeah. So they maybe needed some technologies to do that. Um, yeah, to make it more effective. Um, it, I, if it was like nitrates, for example, then we would <laughs> we would know fairly quickly it would right. just disappear into yep. our water. Um, yeah, I wonder if there's a, a microbe down the road that someone will discover that will allow us to tie up these uh, heavy metals more efficiently. That would be a really cool invention or uh, discovery, I guess we would say. Yeah, I think there there are research um, research studies related to that, and um, it looks promising to. To, to find some microbes that are converting uh, metals into less available forms, or also fungi help to um, convert lead to paramorphic. And you asked me earlier about this uh, conversion. So what basically happens is when lead uh, is exposed to available phosphorus, it combines into paramorphic. But you would need uh, lots of phosphorus in the environment to combine this lead efficiently. And it will take some time, sometimes maybe a few years. It depends on the climate and the zone where the site is located. But the idea here is that just lead becomes lead phosphate mineral and it's very stable and it's not uh, or not bioaccessible or has very low bioaccessibility. So it's not really harmful uh, to people. If it gets to human body, uh, like let's say a child consumes it, it will just go through the system and, you know, just the child poops it out and, and not being uh, dissolved in a bloodstream compared to other source or other forms of uh, lead. So paramorphic is really good mineral to have but it uh, takes time naturally to form it or artificially to form it if you want to play around in your garden and try to make this conversion yourself so when we get a lab test back that's not going to tell us the actual form of the arsenic or the lead so we won't know how available this is to our plant we'll just know that it's it's present in some form so, good question. Uh, there are different methods how it's tested. Uh, metals can be measured in total concentrations and phytoavailable concentrations for plants and in bioaccessible concentrations. Uh, total concentrations is just gives us total numbers of how much in total lead or arsenic or cadmium in soil. Phytoavailable, those methods are using extractions to see how much potentially can be uptaken by plant or how much it's available at least for a plant. Uh, and this will be lower than total concentration, typically. Not all of it is going to be available. This can be found in labs, a lot of labs testing for um, phytoavailable nutrients, but also metals. And another question is bioaccessibility. Uh, I've seen only a few labs around the country who test um, for that for public. Uh, it uh, takes um, more effort to to do that method and to do sample preparation. And the method is still uh, there are different methods how to use it. There's an EPA method. There is like European method. Uh, different authors came up with a different method. So they're um, hard to say which one is the best. And it's still uh, tricky uh, in some ways to assess the bioaccessibility. Because when we do these extractions, we try to mimic uh, gastric solution in the lab condition. And it's really difficult to predict what is a human gastric system is. And, you know, like uh, our... Uh, chemistry of, of gastric solution changes if like before we eat, after we eat, it will respond differently potentially on the metals we would consume. And it's very difficult to mimic this in the lab conditions. That's why there's so methods that exist out there and the labs uh, don't really, uh, not many labs offer those tests to public. If you get a chance to find a lab that um, 
test for bioaccessibility, uh, you should do at least several samples to, for you to get an idea what numbers you're getting. Okay, so it's not very uh, cost-effective necessarily or realistic for the average person or grower to to find that out. Yeah, I don't know the point. prices. Yeah, I don't know if they're like what are the prices for them. They're just not as publicly available tests as I seen. Like not every laboratory offers that. Okay. Okay. Um, and while while you were talking about that, it, it got me thinking about one other variable that I meant to mention that we've kind of touched on is uh, not just uh, crop selection in terms of uh, uh, variety, but also uh, or uh, species, but also. Um, cultivar selection. So the amount of genetic diversity we see in cannabis is is huge. It's it's much larger than any other you know ornamental or vegetable crop that that anyone would grow. So um, we found that certain genetics will uptake heavy metals much more efficiently than others. So just because one mm -hmm. genetic fails doesn't mean that other ones will fail in that same soil. So that's just one other factor. I mean. There's so many variables here when it comes to heavy metal uptake that you've that you've touched on. Um, it just it's, it's sure a complicated more to topic. In the future. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it yes. is. It's complicated. <laughs> yes. So, um, is there anything else that you would like to share before we sign off in regards to um, your research or upcoming research that you're really excited about? Well, uh, currently I am working on a soil survey for heavy metals in Louisiana, but I always welcome samples from around the country. It's really interesting to see what people are getting in their soils or amendments or fertilizers. So lab is open to other uh, people from across the country to send the samples to us. Um, I continue studying heavy metals in the, the different form and shape and uh, my current research also involves using uh, magnetism, soil magnetism to understand how that may correlate with heavy metals and also um, find a way to make methods even uh, less time consuming, even more affordable. So we're still working on developing uh, the best methodology possible and uh, hopefully in the future we'll be able to um, offer the bioaccessibility tests with uh, XRF. So we are still working on that to make it through uh, portable technology. Uh, so yeah, basically if people want to send their soils to the lab, feel free to send them to our website uh, or just Google Delta Urban Soils Laboratory. Um, and they will find information on how to collect their samples and where to mail them to. Um, and if they want to look at my research, I also have my website, it's annapeltseva.com, um, and my Instagram, soil underscore expert. I love chatting with different people, and I'm always responding to my Instagram, so I'm going to be pleased to hear uh, what people experience in their gardens and homes around the country. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought those up because I was going to list all of those things and I'll have them in the uh, introduction as well and on the podcast page because uh, it, it might be a little tricky to spell your last name for people unfamiliar. Um, but but I highly suggest people uh, do check out your social media. You're quite active on there. Um, and you just recently posted, I, I saw a story where you were showing exactly how you do the testing on the uh, heavy yeah. metal analysis, which I, I thought was fascinating. It's wonderful to actually see what's happening in a lab. And uh, you're just, you're a very interesting mix of, um, you know, fashion and soil science, which you don't typically put together. Um, so I think <laughs> it's a lot of fun and people should definitely uh, check you out. Thank you so much. I appreciate that you reached out to me, invited to the podcast, and I'm uh, excited to collaborate more on different projects, test more of your samples, and be engaged with the audience. Yeah, I, I, we definitely will be sending you a lot more samples as we try to discover, um, not just te we're testing, we're in the process of testing all of our soil amendments and fertilizers right now to make sure that they're, we know the heavy metal levels and know that they're safe. But also um, 
we're working on formulating all the time, trying to come up with new new formulations that are going to lower heavy metal risk um, for growers on the organic side. So um, you're what you're doing is a huge resource and we're very grateful for it and i thank you for coming on the show today it's our show today thanks for your time thank you so much that was dr anna paltseva and you are listening to the cannabis cultivation and science podcast i'm your host tad hussey I'll post pertinent links on the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab and then podcast. Thanks for listening.